selected sermon from the last five years. It was preached the first Sunday of January 2018. It was preached later that same year at the pastor's conference of the Southern Baptist Convention in Dallas, Texas. The name of the message is, Have You Been to Zarephath? It's 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 7 to 24. It's that passage I invite you to give your attention, and once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. 1 Kings chapter 17, I'll begin reading at verse 7. I'll conclude at verse 24. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I've commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you please bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? And as she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar, a little oil in a jug. You see, I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. Then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up. The jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. So she went away and did as Elijah had told her. There was food every day for Elijah, for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and to kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Oh, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times, and he cried to the Lord, Oh, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry. The boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child, carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Have you ever been to Zarephath? 
I hear the absurdity of the question even as I ask it. Zarephath is not known for tourism. It's not a very luxurious spot to visit. It's a coastal town located on the Mediterranean Sea, nestled between Tyre and Sidon. I wonder, have you ever been to Zarephath? I doubt you have, at least not intentionally. The story I read for you is a story that showcases God's power and provision in a culture that was quickly becoming religiously tolerant. At this time in human history, Israel was being led by a man named Ahab. The truth of the matter is that King Ahab was a pathetic king. The Bible says of him, he did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings before him. His first mistake is that he married Jezebel, the bad girl of Scripture. Second mistake is that he imported the pagan idolatry of Baal into the nation. Now, friend, if there's one thing I know about God, it's this. God hates sin. He hates your sin more than you hate your sin. You can call it whatever you want to. You can call it a character flaw, a minor mistake. You can call it an alternative lifestyle, boys being boys, or simply to err as human. But regardless, God hates disobedience. And payday always comes someday. And in our passage, it is God who raises up a prophet to speak a word of judgment against Ahab and the nation. This prophet was not given the slightest introduction. He just burst onto the scenes. He doesn't have the right credentials. He was never educated at one of our accredited seminaries. He doesn't have the right experience. He only has the credential that matters. He's called by God for such a time as this. The truth of the matter is he's just a redneck from the sticks. And somehow Elijah gains an audience with the most powerful man in all of Israel. He enters the court of King Ahab and gives what sounds like a James Spann meteorological report. He says, as sure as the Lord I serve lives, there'll be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. And with that proclamation, he nodded his head, turned around, walked away, leaving Ahab stunned. This declaration of no rain sounds odd to us until we remember that Israel is largely an agrarian society. Rainfall is a precious commodity. Without it, it can cripple an otherwise robust economy. We also need to remember that Baal was believed to be the god that controlled the weather forecast. Normally, Baal is portrayed as standing on a cloud holding a lightning bolt in his hand. What Elijah is saying to King Ahab is, is your false god Baal? He ain't no god at all. In fact, he cannot muster one drop of rain. It is the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. It is Yahweh himself who opens the floodgates and shuts up the skies. And it is God who judged the nation by giving them a drought. That drought eventually would lead to a famine. The word of God came to Elijah and told him to go to the Kareth Ravine. In the meantime, the Lord said, I will uh, provide everything you need by a raven service. For ravens will bring you meat and bread in the morning and meat and bread in the evening. You can drink from the crystal clear water of the brook. You can rest in there in the Kareth Ravine. And friend, I've got to tell you, at first it was pretty posh. It was pretty plush. 
I mean, stop and think about those details of the story. They're not insignificant. Because in that narration, we are told that the ravens, the birds, the vultures, they're the ones that brought meat and bread to Elijah. A raven is a cousin of a vulture. You would expect for that raven to eat all the meat and eat all the bread himself. But that bird is even under the sovereign control of God. There is nothing in creation that's out of bounds. There is nothing that happens to you that catches God off guard. God is in charge of every single detail of your life. He organizes it. He orchestrates it. He even commands the ravens, and they feed you twice a day. Meat and bread in the morning, meat and bread in the evening. But just like all good things, all good things eventually come to an end. And because of the famine, because of the drought, the Kareth Ravine dried up. And the word of the Lord came once again to Elijah. Go at once to Zarephath. Zarephath is a city that was known for smelting. Literally, the word Zarephath means a place of refining. Smelting is the process of burning impurities out of metals. The process goes something like this. A glob of metal is subjected to heat. And that heat causes the impurities to rise to the top. An instrument is used to scrape away those impurities, leaving behind the pure, precious metal. Spiritually speaking, this is what Job had in mind when he said, When God has finished testing me, I will come forth as pure gold. It's this city of smelting. It's this place of refining. It is this this location of suffering. That's the place where God sends Elijah. He tells Elijah... I want you to go to Zarephath, for I provided a widow there to provide you with food. So we read in verse 10, Elijah went to Zarephath. Apparently, no questions asked. Friend, if you and I are going to navigate Zarephath, we must understand first and foremost that obedience is required. In this one chapter of 1 Kings 17, emphasis upon Obedience to the word of God is mentioned no less than seven times. Seven is that biblical number of completion. In this one chapter, we hear time and time again the necessity of God's people to be obedient to the word of God. We are to obey God's word. And therein lies one of the greatest challenges for the church today. The greatest challenge for the church is not belief in the word of God. No, there are literally hundreds upon thousands of individuals who believe that this is God's word. The greatest challenge for the church is not access to the word of God. For the Bible remains the number one seller year in and year out. And even though in our day there are some cities in our land that are burning copies of the Bible by the hundreds, which, my friend, that is an act of persecution against the church, if you didn't realize that. And so they are burning Bibles, but even with the burning of Bibles, we still have great access to the very Word of God. The greatest challenge for the church is not even knowledge of the Word of God, even though I would agree with you. The biblical literacy is at an all-time low, and it seems to be spiraling out of control. But even that is not the greatest challenge of the church. The greatest challenge of the church of Jesus Christ, especially in America today, is obedience to the Word of God. If we don't have a problem with obedience, then how do you explain the frequency of adultery and the prominence of divorce that is just as prevalent inside the church as outside the church. 
If we don't have a problem with obedience, then how do you defend and how do you explain the use of pornography, which is just as dominating inside the church as outside the church? For I've told you before that all of the, stu- all the studies, they bear the same facts, that one out of every two self-proclaiming religious men, one out of every five self-proclaiming religious women, four out of every ten pastors have viewed pornography at some point in the last 30 days. If we don't have a problem with obedience, then how do you explain that? If we don't have a problem with obedience, then how do you explain that materialism and greed and anger and pride seems to suffocate the life out of believers at the same rate as non-believers. Oh, my friend, I'm here to tell you that we have a problem with obedience. There are many people in the church, they have right belief but wrong behavior. And there's been a great divorce between the head and the hands for we know what we ought to do, but it's severed from what we actually do. And friends, what we need today is a mighty revival of God sweep across this land, to sweep across this world. It was just a few months ago that I came across an article. And in that article, the author tried to itemize and articulate the last three great movements in the American church. It has spanned over the last 30 years. There's the megachurch movement. There's the multi-campus movement. There's been the missional movement. The interesting fact is that all three of those movements claim that we will make a dent in lostness. The megachurch movement said that if churches are large enough and they offer such quality, excellent ministry, preaching, and worship, that people will just flock to the church and Because of that, we will see that lostness in our cities and towns and regions and areas, it will just evaporate. The multi-site movement came along and said it may not be the answer for a megachurch, but if, if a local city or town or state or region is saturated with multi-campuses under the same umbrella where the same preaching and teaching and the same worship goes forth, then everybody will be hearing the same thing, the same marching orders, and we will make a dent in lostness. And in fact, lostness in our area will simply evaporate. And then came the missional movement where the missional movement said, it's up to the local church to send out missionaries, to, to make disciples, to be disciples, to send them across the street and across the globe. And there they will have a fervor for evangelism that's ignited within them. And they will share the gospel, not just there, but also here. And friend, we've seen all of these movements. These movements are still uh, having effect, uh, somewhat positive effect, but the author of the article came to this conclusion after all three of those movements. We have not made a dent in lostness. In the final paragraph, the author just simply claimed, we do not need another man-made movement. We don't need another fancy program of how to organize the church. What we need is a God movement. For God, by his power, by his spirit, to sweep inside the hearts and minds of believers so that we will be on fire for him, hungry for the holy things of God. And it will be evidenced by our desire for obedience more than anything else. For we will see that God's people are obedient unto his word. Friend, what we need more than anything else is for God 
God to send a revival. Let it start today. Let it start right here. Let it start right now. Let it start with us. We need for God to send a revival. Let me just add that pain is a massive megaphone unto God. And this pandemic, I believe, God is permitted to happen to grab the attention of the church for God to say to the church, let's stop just sitting back and doing things as usual. Let us be infectious and obsessed with obedience unto God. I think that's what makes this story so refreshing. The word of God comes to the man of God, and the man of God's obedient to the word of God. Elijah knew that he had to be obsessed with obedience. Go to Zarephath. He went at once. When he got to the city gate, he found a woman who was picking up sticks. He automatically assumed this is the God-sent woman who's going to provide all my needs. I mean, God clearly said, go to this foreign region of Zarephath, a, a place that's outside the jurisdiction of Israel. You go to Zarephath, but don't worry, because I have jurisdiction even outside the boundaries of Israel. You go to Zarephath, for I've commanded a widow there, and she'll provide all that you need. So he very politely said, excuse me, ma'am. Will you go and get me a glass of water? And off she went. And he thought to himself, cha-ching, that's the girl. That's the woman. Oh, and before you come back, could you please bake me a piece of bread? It's at that request that she stopped in her tracks and turned around and said, I'm sorry. I only have a little bit of flour in a jar and only a few drops of oil in a jug. You see, I'm here gathering sticks so I can make one last meal for me and for my son so we can eat it and then die. I don't know about you, but if that were me, I'd start looking for another widow. I mean, there's got to be another widow in this place. There's got to be somebody else. At the very least, I'd have a conversation with God. God, are you kidding me? Did you hear what she just said? She can't take care of herself. How is she also going to take care of me? God, I think that uh, one of us made a mistake. Either you made a mistake in calling me here, or I made a wrong turn somewhere. But this is confusing. To be honest with you, Lord, this is frustrating. This is aggravating. God, this just doesn't make sense. Have you ever been to Zarephath? Have you ever been to that place where God just does not make sense? Zarephath is a place where faith is tested and the improbable becomes possible. The prophet said to the woman, you go home and you do as you have said, but first bake me a piece of bread. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Your flour won't run out. Your jug of oil won't run dry until the day the Lord brings rain upon the land. And this woman went in obedience, and every day she discovered there was just enough flour and just enough oil. Uh, friends, if you are going to navigate Zarephath, first and foremost, you must know that obedience is required. But secondly, in Zarephath, God becomes very real and personal. 
For this woman, he became real and personal in her kitchen. Can you imagine every day she woke up and she wondered, will there be some more flour? Will there be some more oil? And every day she reached in and there was just enough flour and she opened the jug and there was just enough oil and she came to the conclusion that the God of Elijah is a just enough God. I wonder, is there anybody in the house who could give testimony that ours is a God who's a just enough God? He always provides just enough. He always uh, shows up at just just the right time. I wonder, is there anybody who can say God is a just enough God? I know that somebody would want to push back. Somebody would say, but, but pastor, he's a more than enough God. I'm not going to argue with you. I actually agree with you. But if you're in Zarephath, you're not asking for more than enough. You're just asking for just enough. And if you're in Zarephath, all you need is just enough. And every time you need it, God always shows up. He's a just enough God. Can you imagine with me that each time she went in and she found just enough flour and just enough oil. She might have sung the song, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, your hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Can you imagine this woman as she praised God in her kitchen? For she knew that this was a just enough God. And God became very real to her. God became very personal. If you ever find yourself in Zarephath, you don't talk about that God. You talk about my God. When you're in Zarephath, it's not enough to speak of that so-called Redeemer. The only way you're going to make it is to speak of my Redeemer. When you're in Zarephath, you can't navigate just thinking about that so-called Creator. No, he, he's my Creator. Because in the moment of refining, in the moment of smelting, in the moment of suffering, in the moment of sickness, in the moment of sadness, in the moment of a pandemic, the only way you make it through is because God is real and personal. And this real personal God always supplies just enough. If the story ended in verse 16, so would the sermon. But because the story doesn't end in verse 16. I'm sorry about your luck. Neither does the sermon. Do you know why the passage doesn't end in verse 16? Because life doesn't end in verse 16. There's always a verse 17. It's the rhythm of life. It's not just the rhythm of Scripture that after 16 comes 17, but in the rhythm and cadence of life, after the high of Verse 16, there's always a low of verse 17. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house grew sick. It's the kind of sickness that you know intuitively he's not going to get better. The author says he grew worse and worse. I can well imagine that this widow was a great mama. She checked on her son every day, multiple times a day. She watched his strength wane. It didn't take very long for him to become a skeleton of the robust young man he used to be. He became so weak, he could not even lift his head off the pillow for a sip of soup. She knew it was only a matter of time. One day, 
the unthinkable happened. She walked in to check on him, and there was inhalation, but there was no exhalation. There was a tick on the clock, but there was no talk. Time stood still. The coldness of death saturated the house. The silence gave way to screams and sobs. This woman turned to the only other person in the house, Elijah, and she blasted him. Man of God, why did you come? Did you come to remind me of my sin and to kill my son? Whenever you're in a crowd of this size, you know that there are people who don't indict this woman, they identify with this woman. Maybe you know what it is to stand at the casket of your spouse. This woman knew she was a widow. Maybe you know what it is to have life's most vicious curveball thrown at you. For children are supposed to bury their parents. Parents aren't supposed to bury their children. And maybe there's somebody who knows the pain and the agony of having to stand at the bedside and watch their child die. And when you hear this woman, you do not blast her for blasting Elijah. You don't indict her. You identify with her. And even if you don't know the pain of losing a spouse or losing a child, you know what it is to suffer. You know what it is to have agony. You know what it is to be in Zarephath. You know what it is to have to be refined and smelted and suffer. You know what it is that she's feeling. I think Elijah understood. He just simply said, give me your boy. He took the boy from her arms. Visualize that. She is clutching at that corpse. And Elijah just says, give me your boy. Taking the young man from the mother's arms, he goes upstairs. I find it interesting that he takes the dead corpse to the upper room. I find his actions even more intriguing. It's there in the confines of that prayer closet. It's there that Elijah just simply asked God a big question. Did you do this? Did you bring me here to remind this woman of her sin and to kill her son? That's a big question, don't you think? That's a question that you might not articulate to your closest friend, but you can ask it of God because God has big shoulders. He can handle all of the tough, hard, heavy questions that you level against him. That's what Elijah did. Elijah got there and he simply cried out. You know what the word cried out means? He just prayed. Because when you're in Zarephath, not only, number one, is obedience required. Not only, number two, does God become real and personal. But number three, the only way to cope with life is to pray. Prayer is not the least we can do. Prayer is the best we can do. And that's what Elijah does. He prays. It is gut-wrenching prayer. It is honesty before the Lord. Did you do this? It was J.C. Ryle who said it's possible for a man to preach great sermons with false motives, write books that are very thought-provoking, do deeds that are 
viewed as noble, and still be a Judas Iscariot. But you show me a man who goes into his closet, and in secrecy, he bears his soul before God. I'll show you a man who's serious about the Lord. Friend, that's the prophet Elijah. He doesn't ask all these questions for everybody to hear. He takes the boy to his upper room, to his closet, to his prayer closet. He goes in there, he shuts the door, and he just asks God, did you do this? Regardless, God, here's my request. Let this boy's life return. Now, as you read the story, I will be honest with you, it gets a little creepy right here. I mean... The grown man, Elijah, lays down on the dead corpse. Now, let's just be honest. That's a little creepy. Why would Elijah do that? I think he's asking God, please touch this boy through me. So he prayed not once or twice, but three times. Let this boy's life return to him. Let this boy's life return to him. Oh, God, please let this boy's life return. And the author of the scripture says that God heard the boy's life returned, and he lived. As I read that, I, I've got to be honest with you. I, I read it, and it's kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? If God had asked me to write the scripture, which he didn't, but if he did, I think I'd be a little more passionate in this moment. I think I would write something like, you won't believe what happened next. I mean, Elijah, he prayed, and he shook the rafters, and God showed up, and God did the miraculous, and that boy started breathing again. But the Bible doesn't write it like that, does it? The Bible, in just a nonchalant way, simply says, God heard, the boy's life returned, and he lived. It's almost as if the author of the Scripture is not surprised at what God did. Why does it surprise us sometimes when God moves? Why does it surprise us sometimes when God actually grants the request that we make of him? Why does it surprise us sometimes when God ignites his church? Why does it surprise us sometimes when God answers our prayers? For we serve the same God who made the world by speaking it into existence in six days. We serve the same God that taught the sun how to shine, the birds how to fly, and the fish how to swim. We serve the same God that made the promise and kept the promise through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We serve the same God who protected Noah and his family in the worldwide flood. We serve the same God that protected Jonah in the smelly belly of the fish. We serve the same God that cooled the thermostat for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We serve the same God that shoved the mouths of the lions in Daniel's den. We serve the same God that stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. We serve the same God that fed 5,000 men with five loaves of bread and two fish. We serve the same God that climbed Calvary's hill, stretched his arms out wide, died for your sins and mine was placed into a borrowed grave and on the third day was raised to life. We serve the same God. He is able to do immeasurably more. We can never ask, think, or imagine. Why does it surprise us when God moves? I don't know if Elijah was surprised, but I know the author of the scripture was not. He just simply says, God heard. The boy's life returned and he lived. Elijah picked up the boy, carried him back down the steps. And he said, hey, Ma, your son's alive. Look, no hands. I mean, this is awesome. 
And she responded, now I know that you're a man of God. And every word that tumbles from your mouth is the truth. This woman was in Zarephath. It's a place where faith is tested and the improbable becomes possible. In Zarephath, obedience is required. In Zarephath, God becomes very real and personal. In Zarephath, the only way to cope with life is to pray. I wonder, have you ever been to Zarephath? When I think of Zarephath, I'm reminded of Nain. Nain is that little village in the New Testament where Jesus and the disciples entered. The story that's told for us in the Gospels is strikingly similar to the one I read for you in 1 Kings. Jesus and the boys bump into a funeral. They see the grieving mother. She's a widow. And she's burying her one and only son. And Jesus touched the coffin and everything stopped. You bet your bottom dollar it stopped. Because the holy rabbi had just touched death. Jesus, looking into the casket, said, little boy, get up. And the little boy sat up and began to have a talk with Jesus. Jesus scooped him out of the casket and gave him to his mother. Your son is alive. The crowd went crazy. They didn't know it, but they were in Zarephath. It's a place where faith is tested and the improbable becomes possible. When I think of Zarephath, I'm reminded of Bethany. Bethany is that lovely little village east of Jerusalem. It's there where the three siblings live, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus grew sick. The sisters sent word to Jesus that his best friend was ill, and Jesus stayed where he was for a while. By the time he got there, Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. Jesus went to the cemetery. He ordered for the stone to be rolled away. And Jesus, the author of life, peered into death and said, Lazarus, come out. I'm glad he specified, aren't you? For if Jesus had simply said to death, come out, all the dead in Christ would have come out in that moment. I mean, I'm talking about Adam and Eve and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Esther, Rachel, Rebecca, Daniel, David, just to mention a few. All the dead in Christ would have burst forth from the tomb had Jesus said, come out. But he specified, Lazarus, come out. And when Jesus speaks, even the dead have to immediately respond. And Lazarus came hopping out of the grave. You say, preacher, how do you know he's hopping? Because the gospel writer tells us that Jesus says, unbind his hands and feet. If his hands and feet are bound, the only way that bad boy's coming out is to hop. And so Lazarus just comes out and he does the hallelujah hop. He does the resurrection two-step. He does the faith trot. He does the messianic mamba. He sits there and does the believer boogie. He does the wor worshipful whip and nene. He does the Aryan TikTok. It's there that Elijah, I mean, it's there that, uh, that Lazarus just gets excited because Jesus had called his name and Jesus responds and all the crowd goes crazy and then Lazarus is back to life again. And the reality is they were in Zarephath. They didn't even know it because Zarephath is a place where faith is tested and the improbable becomes possible. When I think of Zarephath, I'm reminded of Calvary. It's that skull-shaped hill called Golgotha. And it's there that Jesus, bearing your sins and mine, climbed that hill. 
he permitted and allowed the Roman soldiers to stretch him wide, to nail him to a cross of wood, to hoist him into the air. And for, for a few hours, on that Friday, in the third decade of the first century, he who knew no sin became my sin. He who knew no sin became your sin. And James Boyce is exactly right. For in those few hours, Jesus endured our hell so we may enjoy his heaven. There's a sweet swap of salvation that takes place by faith, my friends. For there we cast upon Jesus all of our rags and we get all of his righteousness. We give him all of our perversion. He gives us all of his perfection. We give him all of our sin. He gives us all of his sanctification. So that when God looks upon us, it looks as if we have lived the innocent life of Christ both now and forevermore. Friend, that's a sweet swap of salvation. It is Jesus who is calling the shots. Jesus declared to Telestai, it is finished. Jesus was the one that said when the lights were going to go out. Not the Roman soldiers, not Caiaphas, not anybody spitting upon him, not anybody cursing him. It is Jesus who's in charge even of his death. They take his dead body off the cross. We say what the biblical author says. They placed him into a borrowed grave. It's borrowed because Jesus isn't going to stay there very long. He just needs it for a couple of days. And the dead body of Jesus stays there all day Friday and all day Saturday, even into Sunday. But early on Sunday morning, I don't know if you heard me, but I said early on Sunday morning, Jesus rose with all power and healing in his hands so that the women asked the question, who's going to roll away the stone for us? And when they get there, they see that an angel is seated atop it. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen just as he said. Go and see the place where he lay. Then go and tell his disciples, Jesus is alive. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives because he lives I can handle Zarephath the reason I can navigate Zarephath is because Jesus went to the cross the reason I can handle Zarephath is because Jesus died for my sins the reason I can handle Zarephath is because Jesus was placed in my grave the reason I can handle Zarephath is because on the third day Jesus got up because he lives I can handle Zarephath What's interesting about Zarephath is that all of us live in one of three perspectives to it. Either we're about to enter it, we're smack dab in the middle of it, or we just came out of it. But regardless of where you find yourself today, about to enter Zarephath, in the middle of Zarephath, or Zarephath in your rearview mirror, I want you to know that God is there. This God who demands obedience, this God who is real and personal, this God who says prayer is necessary, he is there. He is able to do immeasurably more, more than we could ever ask, think, or imagine. I wonder, have you ever been to Zarephath? What about you? Have you ever been to Zarephath? Hey, friend, have you? Ever been to Zarephath? I bet you have. Whether you wanted to go or not. Because Zarephath is the place 
where faith is tested and the improbable, it becomes possible. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. Think with our minds. Feel with our hearts. Help us to respond in obedience unto you. There may be somebody here who needs to come to you by faith. Let it be so today. There may be somebody here who needs to come and kneel at the altar and pray. Let it be today. Maybe somebody needs to come and join this church. Let it be today. Oh God, thank you. Thank you that you're always in and around Zarephath. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.